Alex Lazaro, thank you so much for sitting down and talking with us. You are with Cathay Innovation. That's right. So before we get into it, could you tell me a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Happily. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. This is fun to have a conversation and, and start yeah. off the conference uh, at Money 2020. So I'm a partner with Cathay Innovation. Mm -hmm. We're a globally focused venture fund. We invest across Series A to Series C mm -hmm. around the world. The whole group is based in Paris, affiliated with Cathay Capital. Um, our last fund's about $800 million, a third invested in Asia, Europe, and North America. And then we also have a Pan-Africa fund mm -hmm. in partnership with Africa Invest and a LATAM presence as well. Um, so really the idea of supporting the best entrepreneurs wherever they are. Mm, got it. So you are not geography specific, agnostic no. very much. And, and actually, in fact, that's really the point, is that oh. we believe that uh, the best of, best of innovation is really globalized and that there are entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley. I live in Silicon Valley and we have an office there. but. Uh, most of our capital is actually deployed all over the world, mm -hmm. supporting the best entrepreneurs, building great businesses everywhere. Is it a different scene working in all of these emerging markets? You know, so it's really interesting. This is this is both a professional passion for me and also a personal one. Mm -hmm. um, outside of work, I just launched a book called Out Innovate, how global entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are rewriting the rules of Silicon Valley. It just came out with, with Harvard Business Review. and. The thesis around that, and really what I've observed happening, is that um, the best of innovation is global. Today, 85 startup ecosystems have created a billion dollar business. They're not just big businesses, they're often the biggest businesses. Uh, the biggest ed tech in the world was built in India, and the biggest super app in the world is in China, and the biggest fintech neobank in the world is from Latin America. Um, but they're operating, to your question, in very different ecosystems. Ecosystems often with less capital, um, less. Uh, depth of trained, been there, done that, startup human capital, mm -hmm. and often in context with more macroeconomic shocks and things like that. And and so, yeah, absolutely, the context is different. And so, actually, a big part of the thesis of my book, I mean, you gave me a really nice layup on the question, was, <laughs> what, what was really about how there's a new playbook on what you should do and how you should do it to build leading startups outside of Silicon Valley. So that is a really interesting thing that I would like to get into, but before we do, yeah. What is the old playbook? Let's level set by talking about the status quo or even the past. So in Silicon Valley, there's a ton of these conventional wisdoms about how you should build a startup. Mm -hmm. um, it starts with what kind of startup should be built. And we're obsessed with this notion of disruption. You're either disrupting or being disrupted. Um, and I think outside of Silicon Valley, people uh, are thinking about a different lens. And we talk a little bit about that. I think the way you grow and scale your business um, is built on this foundation of growth at any cost where it's okay to have unsustainable economics, where it's okay um, to have unmanageable burn, all in service of growth. And mm -hmm. in ecosystems where there might not be less capital or we need more resiliency, mm -hmm. that approach doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And even kind of this viewpoint lens on the world, Silicon Valley often has this insular view looking inwards at the US or even, even smaller, just Silicon Valley. And outside of Silicon Valley, the best entrepreneurs actually are born global. They're taking on multiple markets, often from the get-go. They're building distributed teams. Even before the pandemic, that was best practice. And so we talk a little bit about kind of the how they built their businesses, mm -hmm. which looks different too. So it's actually, um, it's actually stunning how uh, a lot of these conventionalisms are not only being dispelled, but actually I believe the playbook is being reinvented in some meaningful ways. So now let's talk about the new playbook. Let's do playbook. it, okay. The interesting stuff. So tell me, what is the new playbook? <laughs> well, uh, first I'll start by saying um, this is less a recipe book, C follow ABC and then you get success. And it's much more a menu mm -hmm. of choose the ones that are applicable to your context because obviously um, startups around the world, ecosystems around the world are completely heterogeneous and so mm -hmm. we need to build that in. But I will say 
um, what, what I've observed in my research of interviewing 200 plus entrepreneurs, mostly leading some of the biggest startups around the world, is that um, they're doing those three dimensions I described and many more, of course, uh, differently. They are creating industries. They're building products and services for the mass market. Um, they're often the shoulders upon giants of giants upon which others build the next generation of innovations. Um, they're building what I call the camels. They're building on a foundation of sustainability and resiliency from the get-go. Camels are animals that can survive anywhere around the world. They can, when times are good, drink water mm -hmm. faster than almost anyone and sprint across the desert, but they can also mm -hmm. survive in the hard times. Um, and so startups are built with that foundation. And then I alluded to this notion of being born global um, and taking a broader, broader view. The best ideas are coming from anywhere and they're scaling everywhere. Um, the best startups are often taking multi-market approach rather than just one country. And so actually this lens upon which they're looking um, uh, is different and, and, and that's powerful. So I'm intrigued by your camel analogy. Yeah. Uh, the reason I am is because it is so, it's such an adage that the startup ecosystem is incredibly competitive and only yeah. the creme de la creme, you know, make it to the top. And you assume that the creme de la creme, after having been exposed to so much competition, is going to be durable yeah. at minimum, right? Yeah. And what you're telling me is that there is more durability, i.e. the camel example, in markets outside the United States. Yeah, and, and, and if I was gonna take, so first of all, if I was gonna take a, a macro lens out um, on the book, I'd say one of the big themes is that constraints, challenges, actually build resiliency and strength. And so it's actually a disadvantage in some ways, you'd say, of being in a harder ecosystem where there's less capital, there are more macroeconomic shocks. And as a result, you build this strategy. But sometimes constraints breed incredible creativity. Exactly. And like a haiku. Uh, like a haiku, exactly. And so in this, in this I, I like that. Um, so in this particular example, um, I actually think these constraints breed a strategy and that strategy ends up having advantages. And, um, and I actually think... Could you give us an example of that? Like an actual tangible example for sure. of something that, you know, made perfect sense in a market in India and Asia where you really wouldn't have like backed into that yeah. in a United States example? You know, what's interesting is like a big context of my book is that it's not actually just about Silicon Valley and emerging markets. The same thing can actually exist in the US too. And so in the book, I talk about the example of Grubhub, uh, which is a kind of on-demand delivery business. And uh, when I was interviewing Mike Evans, one of the co-founders, he was the COO, he talked a lot about the fact that at every single fundraise, they were profitable. And the whole way through, they were unit economic sustainable. And that was a key to their success. And he said, look, it took us about 10 years to um, IPO to exit. They could have done it in two ye less years, mm -hmm. but they would have done so at tremendously more risk. Mm -hmm. And that's really the point of what I'm trying to talk about is that we often look at the end result of businesses and we say, wow, they got to this point. How did they get there? And we look at the method and we say, that must be the answer. And I believe that actually uh, we're seeing one outcome, but if you played that movie back a hundred times in different macroeconomic scenarios or at this very particular moment in time, if you played it, out across a bunch of different businesses or competitive dynamics, et cetera, you would have more risk-adjusted outcomes at the final point um, than, you, uh, than you would taking this growth at all cost mentality. Right. That being said, right, like, you know, th there's a lot of research around when you should do growth at all costs and things like that. And, 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 and there can be an argument for, and I believe there is in certain fairly, cases. Yeah, fairly unique cases, right? Like where you really need to be the first mover or where gaining market share is like of vital importance. Yeah. And, and, and uh, where, for instance, it's a winner, truly a winner takes all market. Mm -hmm. 
um, and your competitors are heavily funded. And, 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 and the authors of Blitzscaling, for instance, have done a really thoughtful job of describing when it is. And, and, and my view is that for a lot of startups, the vast majority of startups that are not in those constrained situations, it actually makes a lot of sense to build on a foundation of sustainability and resilience really strongly in economics. Mm -hmm. And then venture capital is a tool mm -hmm. that you can raise. I'm a venture capitalist. I'm biased. I believe it's um, a powerful tool. It's not for everyone. Um, but it can be a powerful accelerant for those that choose to have it at the right time, at the right place, on that foundation. So let me push back on that a tiny bit. Let's right? do it. A lot of people would say that venture is precisely the reason why so many people adopt a growth at all cost mentality. So what would you say about that? Because um, venture certainly pushes for, you, you know, know you I, need to have up rounds, you need to have up rounds quickly, right? I think, I think that one of the dangers we have, so every startup has a... Um, a burn curve, right? Or right. a valley of death. Right. And if venture capital is the default, is the only option, then you're on that rodeo forever. I, I actually believe venture capital is an incredible accelerant and can be used very, very successfully. And, 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 and um, of course, I'm biased. I've invested in a bunch of companies where I'm a big believer in it. Um, I just think that it cannot be the default option all the time right. um, it cannot be the default way uh, for business not every business. company, every company at ev company. and not every round at every time needs to be a hundred percent of the time and, th and that's really the point that I'm trying to make right right so you've given us a great overview of your book I know that in your professional life you focus mostly on fintech investments how do the two overlap it's so interesting. A lot of the work from the book was informed by my own investing on the professional point, outside of work. Um, I, I had been teaching and, and speaking to entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. um, and so that had been the genesis of the work. But actually, a lot of the themes and what guides my own investing are based on and informed by many of the themes uh, in the book. Um, and I'll give you kind of one example where I've been really interested in this question of cross-pollination of ideas, where the best ideas come from anywhere and scale to everywhere. And so a theme that I have been really interested in for a long time has been uh, neobanks, where around the world, fintechs have been unbundling different parts of the bank, often the most profitable products, remittances into a standalone startup, wealth management into a standalone startup, payments into a standalone startup, and so on. Um, and over time, in the United States, for instance, um, a few years ago, I remember the stat where there's like 1,500 Series A funded fintech companies. Mm -hmm. And the end result is every individual product was an incredible experience, but it left the consumer with a pretty big, wide- You have to have uh, 15 apps on your phone. Exactly, to manage, to manage what is a banking experience. And, right. and so I had expected there to be a rebundling. And, uh, and that rebundling to occur at the point closest to the paycheck. So the checking account mm -hmm. uh, around neobanks. Um, and so the first few big mega rounds in the neobank space actually happened in the UK, uh, where one model of that kind of emerged. We ended up, um, and this is when my previous firm and uh, at Omidyar Network invested in uh, Chime Bank. And that was how I got to know Cathay, which had led the Series B of, of Chime and, and how I ended up joining. Um, uh, and Chime was building a neobank built on a payments interchange model and, and with, a, with, a, with a, a checking account. And in Latin America, a new bank was building a model um, that looked a little bit more like Capital, capital One with a credit lend uh, and, and credit cards as part of it. And so this wave of innovation was happening, but all these models were manifesting themselves in slightly different ways. And that, um, that ended up inspiring the next generation of these neobanks that are building now all over the world, inspiring from different features, but also adapting them uh, very thoughtfully to the local ecosystem as well. 
interesting. So did the rebundling happen? Is it in the process of happening? And is it in accordance with your, you know, idea, your thesis? So it's really interesting. To paycheck? Um, it is happening, I believe. I think it's also an ongoing process. And what we're seeing is actually, one, the neobanks are doing this and adding a bunch of other products around the world. Mm -hmm. But also some of the other platforms, for instance, the wealth managers are adding checking accounts. And, uh, um, and the credit cards are adding additional features or what have you. And so actually what we're seeing is a little bit of horizontalization right. um, acro across the consumer landscape. And so the rebundling is happening, um, but actually it's happening by a number of players more and more. Do you think that, so if you look at um, over the top you know, streaming services, right? Yeah. The interesting thing is we used to only have one cable company, but now, and a lot of people thought that having 85 different streaming services would eventually end up you know, yeah. leading to rebundling, but we've learned that consumers have a much higher tolerance than we expected to have 10 services or yeah. six services. Do you think that that's similar? I think that what happened before was that there was high transaction costs um, of switching. Right. It was very complicated to open a new checking account, and so people never really did. It was really complicated to get a new mortgage or whatever it was. And now I think that interoperability is getting better, and I believe will continue to get better for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. um, and with one platform of your phone, it's also much easier to manage across a bunch of different things. So um, I do believe that we will have more of these relationships. That being said, um, in credit cards, there's a concept of being top of wallet, right? Like the first card you take out. Right. I think that concept still matters, uh, where there's going to be one or two relationships that will have primacy over everything else. There'll be a power law where you might have a long tail of relationships for doing a bunch of different things very specifically that all integrate nicely because of these things. But you have a couple of places where you're going to go more, more time. It might be Robinhood because that's where you're really active with that. Or it might be with Chime because uh, that's where you're getting your paycheck and you really value some of the get paid early or other features yeah. or, or whatever it is. All that being said, I still believe there's, uh, there's going to be some relationships that have primacy over others. And in credit cards, you can think of the concept of top of wallet where you might have a couple credit cards, but there's the first one mm -hmm. that you take out. In the same way, I think that uh, with fintech, you might have a number of relationships but there'll be a few that'll matter the most. And that'll be, I think, where the battleground will play out. And, uh, and Robinhood might be that if people are really active in that way, or it might be Chime, I mean, value some of those features like getting paid early, or it might be any number of other ones um, that have really locked in a relationship with, with a consumer for a specific reason. And so I think that's how the model will evolve. Got it. So I want to switch, we've talked a lot about micro stuff. Um, I want to switch to macro. Yeah. So if you're looking at the space overall from a 10,000 foot view, what are the big changes that you see coming because of COVID and in the year or two after? So I think we're seeing a number of changes. I think one is, let's not forget, financial services represent almost 20% of global GDP and uh, have a long way to go. So I still think we're in the second or third inning of fintech innovation, both on the consumer front end, but also the enabling technologies that will work with banks, et cetera. Um, a couple of things that I think that are getting me really excited. One is we're seeing a shift in who are the players. So embedded finance has been a term that's been uh, thrown around quite a bit. But I think what it allows is a, a movement of the production and distribution of financial services away from a traditional bank or financial service organization and to a point closer to the consumer and their relationship. So imagine you buy a cell phone and embedded within that is a feature um, of insurance and if it breaks down um, and things like that. So I think we're going to see a shift towards that 
um, for a number of things, not everything. Um, so that'll, that'll, I think, be one. I think the second thing is uh, we're now seeing a lot of breakouts. It used to be uh, that fintechs were a little bit of a small sideshow, mm -hmm. um, small uh, consumer apps and things on like that periphery. on the periphery. Now they're starting to be the main, main event. Mm -hmm. um, and as a result, I think we're going to see more and more acceleration among incumbents um, looking to modernize their stack, looking to partner uh, with other players to try to um, uh, modernize and compete more effectively. So I think we're going to see an acceleration of that, which ultimately will be good for consumers because it'll level up uh, the consumer experience um, and the business experience for everywhere. And the third thing that I think we're going to see is, I think there's been a lot of action on the consumer front. I'm really interested in innovations targeting small and medium-sized businesses, and it's been a big area of investment focus for me. Um, and I think we're going to see a big growth in that in the coming years too. Great. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. I very much appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is delightful. Thank you. Okay.